In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to continue our Lenten series looking at the book of Exodus. We're going to talk about how Moses is established as the mediator of the covenant in the book of Exodus and how that connects to our Lenten journey. Please enjoy. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where we explore the sources of the Catholic faith, including the scriptures, the documents of the church, the teachings of the Second Vatican Council, and the lives and witness of the saints. St. John Paul II often said, Duke in Altum, set out into deep waters. And our goal here at the podcast is to help you do just that. We don't want to merely provide you with information. Instead, we seek to help you achieve a true transformation and to respond to the Lord's call in your life to live out the universal call to holiness. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute in the Diocese of Tyler. Uh, We are going to continue our Lenten series, um, which we started a couple of weeks ago, talking about um, the book of Exodus. Um, And so in this episode, what I want to do is um, really just kind of set our, get ourselves set at the beginning of the story. Um, I always think beginnings of, of stories are, are just so so important, and I know I've talked about that. Um, so all eight of you who listen to all our um, episodes, you've heard me talk about that before. And for those of you who haven't, you are missing out. So listen to some of our um, other episodes. Uh, but in, in particular, at, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, what I really want to focus on today is um, just actually reading a couple of chapters um, so probably probably two or three chapters, um, which doesn't sound like much, uh, but there are a lot of things kind of going on beneath the surface. Um, and I think in 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 the most uh, the most important thing about these first couple of chapters is first we see Moses's birth and um, sort of the the miraculous way in which God provides for him and protects him, and it foreshadows very much. Um, Christ's uh, beginning and the beginning of his life and the danger that he faced. And then we'll see the call of Moses and God revealing his name. And all that's just in the first three chapters of the book of Exodus. Um, so, but but all, all of those are very, very important things. Um, and so that's where we're going to start. I'm not actually going to begin at the, the absolute beginning of the book of Exodus. I'm going to jump uh, from the first few verses um, and start in chapter 1, verse 8. Um, so this is the description of the Israelites being oppressed by the Egyptians. So just chapter 1 of Exodus, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the sons of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply And if war befall us, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the sons of Israel. So they made the sons of Israel serve with rigor, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they made them serve with rigor. 
Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephara and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and delivered before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So the the first sort of uh, bit of this story just sets the stage that the Israelites are God's chosen people, they are thriving, even under this severe service, the, the, the difficult work uh, that they're being called to do, and it catches the ire of Pharaoh, right? And so what's, what's one of the, the things that, that we see at the beginning of Christ's birth? We see a jealous king, right, who is—he's even more jealous than Pharaoh, if you can imagine, right? Pharaoh sees all this great success of the Israelites, uh, but he— the line, he did not know Joseph, right? It's like he doesn't recognize Joseph as, as being important, doesn't understand why uh, there is all of this blessing on this community, and he wants to stop their increase, um, allegedly because he's worried about war, right? But clearly there's jealousy. In Christ's life, right, there is this rumor that one child has been born that's going to be a threat, um, and uh, you know the the Caesar at the time, um, the the rulers at the time are, are very concerned. Herod, uh, sorry, <laughs> Herod is you know not having any of it, and and he wants to murder all the children under the age of two. So you see this close parallel um, with with uh, the situation early uh, that, that that gives rise to Moses, and um, also. A similar thing happens with Jesus. Something else that, that kind of leaped out at me as I was reading uh, was this notion that the punishment for the uh, Hebrews, for the Israelites, is that they've got to do labor, and it's building things. And I've never really thought of this before, but what happens finally at the end, you know, it's long down the line, it's not the same people, not the same individuals, but the the Israelites will then construct a temple. So like at the end, they're going to use their labor to construct a temple for the worship of God. So there's there's something sort of beautiful about that. Um, but then also note the, the disobedient Hebrew midwives who refuse to kill the Hebrew sons. They are then punished, and then Pharaoh's command actually expands. So initially, he's asking just the midwives to you know, not let the male children live. But then he says to everyone, all his people, verse 22, every son that is born you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. All right, chapter 2 now, the birth of Moses. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife, took to wife a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a goodly child— she hid him three months. When she no, could no longer hide him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, 
And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds at the river's brink. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And this child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, for she said, because I drew him out of the water. So this story um, has so much divine providence wrapped in it, right? Moses is, as a child of the Hebrews, supposed to have been killed by the midwives, and then later by all of the population is told, kill all of the Hebrew men, uh, all, all the Hebrew males that are, that are born. Um, and his mother protects him, hides him as long as she can, and puts him in a basket and goes in the river. And there's a lot of layers to this that are really fascinating. First note that Pharaoh is already a danger to Moses from his birth, right? And Pharaoh's goal is to eliminate not Moses specifically, but all of the Israelite males. And because of that danger, he is put into the Nile. And the Nile is actually where, if you'll recall a minute ago, Pharaoh said to throw the male children into the Nile so that they would drown. So in a certain really kind of um, transgressive way, Moses is put into the Nile, which is, which is what Pharaoh wanted. Put the males into the, into the Nile so that they'll die. But he's put into the Nile, but he's not going to die because of it. And in fact, where the Nile River was supposed to cause Moses' death, it's actually going to deliver him into safety in the Pharaoh's own house. Another interesting note here, um, the word for basket, um, teba in, in Hebrew, is used only in one other place in the Bible, and it is to describe Noah's ark. So there's, there's very much a, a sort of a recapitulation of the salvation of Noah's ark, right? There was this threatening, dangerous, destructive water, uh, but the ark survived and, you know, was, was able to carry forward God's plan uh, after the water subsided. Here, dangerous water that, that, that is supposed to be a cause of death actually becomes a source of salvation in a certain sense for Moses because he is picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter. And then look, it's Moses' own mother who is going to get to nurse and basically raise him, um, in, especially in his infancy. And then he will grow up with the great blessings of being, uh, you know, in the royal household. Um, where better to undermine, you know, Pharaoh's um, sort of desire to crush the Israelites? And I think there's there's something, um, you know, really, really interesting about that, that uh, sometimes, like, on a very human level, people think, oh, I don't know how to transform the culture. You know, I, should I be one of those people that just rails against it, or should I work, you know, to, to, to get up into a position of power, and then from within I can sort of, you know, change things. I, I can be, I can be the, the source of change from within the system. 
And I think here in the book of Exodus, we have, you know, Moses par excellence, a figure who could have, you know, in a certain way from within the system been the one to change things. And as we'll see here in a second, that's that's ultimately not how it goes. Uh, The change is going to come when he has long lost his privileges of growing up in the royal household. All right, so we're back um, in chapter 2, still I'm going to start with verse 11, so we'll go from 11 to the end of the chapter. So this is long after Moses was a child. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to that man, To the man that did the wrong, why do you strike your fellow? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zephora. She bore a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. In the course of those many days the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel groaned under their bondage and cried out for help, and their cry under bondage came up to God. And he heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew their condition. All right, a couple of things here. Moses, although he has, you know, been very much uh, saved by divine providence from the death that was supposed to befall him as a male, uh, and lands up in in the royal household, he's set up to fix everything, right? He has all these privileges and all this power. Uh destroys it all by losing his temper. Um, this is something that's that, that never utterly vanishes with Moses. He can never completely get a grip on his temper, and it's it's going to cause some problems for him. Um, you know, he kills an Egyptian because the Egyptian was, you know, uh, maltreating uh, one of the Hebrews, uh, and then it's discovered um, that, you know, he was the one that committed murder. Apparently, he wasn't, wasn't a very competent, um, you know, uh, criminal or a murderer. Um, he wasn't good at covering his tracks. So then he flees into uh, the, the surrounding area. Uh, there's the presence of a well. Um, anytime in the Old Testament people are meeting at a well, it's like it's like a bar in the old in the ancient world. Uh, that's that's where you meet your, your spouse is very, very common uh, biblical motif. Um, and then you have this 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 interesting note in the course of those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel groaned under their bondage and cried out for help, and their cry came up to God. And then we have this line, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God doesn't forget a covenant. 
It's very easy to read that in English and think, oh, did he did he forget the covenant? Now he remembers it. Remembering a covenant has has a very pat or not sorry passive, very active notion um, in uh, in in the the original language. To remember is sort of to to redo, to uh, recommit, um, to breathe life into, or something like that. Right? It's it's not like oh I forgot about that. Now I remember. It's rather commemorate. Maybe would be a, a better way to, to understand it. We're gonna we're gonna memorialize that covenant. We're gonna you know kind of carry it on, um, and so. You, this is the, the the first time here where you see this notion of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this shows us the connection between all of the stuff that happened in the book of Genesis and now here in the book of Exodus. Um, I once was teaching a high school uh, Old Testament class, and uh, I decided I'm going to teach everything uh, in the book of, of Genesis. I'm not going to rush. We're going to take our time, really dig into it, and then, you know, the rest I'll have to kind of speed through it was a class started in January, supposed to be a semester-long class, and I went, I think, till March before we finally finished Genesis. That's, a, that's to say a lot of stuff happens in Genesis. Exodus, though, is not separate from that. It is, it is carrying on. Um, and so the remembering of the covenant um, now is going to fall into Moses' hands. So this is, is what the, really the, the, the most significant portion I want to look at today, which is Moses' uh, calling and the revelation of the divine name. So chapter 3 of the book of Exodus. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the, oppress the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. So here, this notion of serving God is, is, related, is related to that Hebrew word, which I mentioned in the previous episode, abad, right? They are serving Pharaoh in, 
in slavery and servitude, but they will serve or worship really worship God, um, you know, in liturgy upon this mountain. And so, what you can see here is that Moses is being chosen to answer the people of Israel's prayers, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are suffering. Moses is going to be the one who is being sent, commissioned by God, to go to Egypt and to go to Pharaoh and lead the Israelites out. And Moses doesn't believe that this is going to work, wants to know, how am I going to do this? Who am I? And he says, this will be the sign. You will take the people out and come here and worship. And so the immediate concern is not just the liberation from the abad, the work, the service to Pharaoh, but the worship of God on the mountain of Horeb or, or Mount Sinai. So this is the initial call. And of course, Moses, uh, throughout the book of Exodus, does a lot of negotiating with, with God back and forth, you know, trying to clarify and, and, and really a lot of times trying to get out of what, what the Lord is asking of him. So we continue here in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the sons of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now we beg you, and listen to this, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders which I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the, the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and of her who sojourns in her house, jewelry of silver and of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters. Thus you shall despoil the Egyptians. So a lot of stuff happening here. Moses sees this theophany, this bush that is burning but is not consumed. He approaches, the Lord begins to speak to him and tells him, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. You're going to take the Israelites out. He says, how could this, you know, not how could this be, that's, that's uh, you know, New Testament language, but he says, how, how is this going to work? You know, um, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Egypt, of Israel out? And he says, you will worship on this mountain, that will be the sign. But then he says again, well, what do I tell the people? What God? And he gives, God gives him this, this strange answer, I am who I am which is a difficult uh, difficult to, to, to translate, but, but the meaning of it is, is profound in a couple of ways. First of all, 
It indicates that the God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that is speaking to Moses, is not merely, you know, a powerful being. And in fact, he's not a being at all. He is the source of existence itself. He's not someone uh, who is caused, but rather is the cause of everything. Um, and the, the revelation indicates, that this revelation of his identity indicates the mystery and the power of, of who God is. Uh, but it also shows us that this God wants to enter into a very deep and profound relationship with Moses and the people, and that he's even willing to reveal his name. Now, it's a bizarre name, but the fact of wanting to reveal his name tells us something about this God, that he wants to give himself to us, that he is going to reveal things that we could not have known on our own. Um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church has some, some very, very good commentary on this, this revelation of the divine name, um, starting in paragraph 203, uh, but I, I want to read just, just a little bit in paragraph 204 and then um, 206. This is, this is really, I think, really good. 204 says this, God revealed himself progressively and under different names to his people, but the revelation that proved to be the fundamental one for both the Old and the New Covenants was the revelation of the divine name to Moses in the, in the theophany of the burning bush, on the threshold of the Exodus and of the covenant of, on Sinai. And so the revelation is, you know, I am who I am, um, paragraph 206 says this about this specific revelation. So it recounts, it says, Moses said to God, if I come to the Father, to the people of Israel and say, who is, you know, who is sending me, say this, I am who I am. And then there's this commentary in paragraph 206 of the Catechism. In, the reve in revealing his mysterious name, Yahweh, I am he who is, or I am who am, or I am who I am. These are all different ways to try and translate the the the, the you know the, the tetragrammaton. Um, God says he who is and by what name he is to be called. This divine name is mysterious just as God is a mystery. It is at once a name revealed and something like the refusal of a name. And hence it is better it better expresses God as what he is infinitely above everything that we, that we can understand or say. He is the hidden God. His name is ineffable, ineffable, and he is the God who makes himself close to men. By revealing his name, God at the same time reveals his faithfulness, which is from everlasting to everlasting, um, valid for the past as for the future. And God reveals, God who reveals his name as I am, reveals himself as a God who is always there, present to his people, in order to save them. So this revelation of, of the name of God uh, is very powerful because it's not been given prior to that. But then he also says, you can refer to me as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he says this, you're going to go, you're going to talk to Pharaoh and ask to be let three days out into the wilderness to worship. They need to be let out into the wilderness to worship because the worship of Israel is going to involve slaughtering animals. 
And those animals were worshipped as gods by the Egyptians. So they need to be away from the Egyptians to be able to worship without being disturbed. They don't want anybody interrupting their, their, their animal sacrifice um, because it would, it would look, I mean, it would be very scandalous, very sort of, you know, a, a big affront to the Egyptians that you're slaughtering the animals that we, you know, say are sort of divine. And then he says, this is what's going to happen. Pharaoh's not going to relent. I am going to work wonders. And when you finally leave, not only are you going to leave, but you're going to sort of despoil the Egyptians. And this is one of the things that happens through the story of the Exodus. And we'll see more about this um, in, in the next episode, which we'll talk about the actual leaving itself, um, that, that the Israelites not only get to leave, but are sort of ushered away, begged to leave. And this is the power that God has for the uh, people of Israel. Now, something here that I think is, is worth reflecting on, you know, in, in our Lenten context, the same God that did these things for the Israelites is the one that we worship today. And it can be easy to read the book of Exodus and go, geez, God did all this great stuff, you know, all this power, you know, what's he doing for me? And the thing that's important to remember is that he can do anything for us, but some of these, you know, sensible and, and external and visible sort of miracles are meant to prepare us for the bigger mystery of Christ's death and resurrection, right? And the, the, the life that he gives to us through that. It can be easy to kind of lose that focus. Trying to enter into this story, though, of Exodus and, and seeing how the people of Israel will go through these various stages and then so quickly forget what the Lord gave them and did for them, I think can be helpful in our own Lenten journey, and in our own spiritual life. And this is why. It's so easy to think that, like, oh, God used to do all these, you know, miraculous and powerful things, and I, and I, you know, if that's if that's how God operated today, I I would believe it would be easier. But think about this. I mean, even Moses himself has his moments of frustration and doubt. The people of Israel who walked through the Red Sea, who saw all the plagues, and we'll talk a little bit about some of that in the next episode. Those same people quickly forget what God did for them. And one of the benefits that we have that the Israelites did not have is not just a God who has all this power, but a God who has revealed himself more in the person of Jesus Christ, has revealed himself completely, and who gives us his very life in the grace of the sacraments. And when we're not praying, when we're not going to confession, when we're not trying to live uh, you know, a, a life of holiness, it can be real easy to start thinking, if I had lived back then, it would have been so easy to believe. I'd, been, I'd be a good believer. I'd be you know, a strong—I uh, I would have a strong faith in God. In our contemporary world, we think that way frequently. But when you are on— a path of discipleship. You're open to the grace that, that God wants to give you. You are trying. This is different than being perfect, right? But when you're when you're open and really giving yourself to him, Jesus says, I thirst that you may thirst in, in, in the Gospels. 
then you begin to see that those that it is the same God, and in fact, he wants to do more than just work these external and visible miracles. So there's a, there's a, a lot to, to, to really kind of think about and pray about um, as we look at the story of Exodus. Don't take that really common and sort of easy, uh, you know, view that, oh man, these, these people in the Old Testament, you know, God does all these miraculous things for them, and then right away they're forgetting and they're sinful and they're, they're you know, prideful and, and, and upset that things aren't going their way. It's so easy to think that way. But I really want to challenge you to, to realize that you have the gift of faith. You have the gift of the, of the grace of baptism and of the sacraments. That is a bigger gift than what was given to the people in Israel, although what they were given was tremendous. And what happens to them points forward to the ministry, to the life of Christ, and to the, to, to the life of the church, um, so that when we understand these things in this sort of pattern of salvation, we can better understand what Jesus's ministry is on earth and the way that he recapitulates it. So for instance, the general track, the trajectory for Exodus is going to be to go from Egypt, you know, to through the Red Sea and then into the Jordan, into the Promised Land. When Jesus is born, there is a, you know, Herod who's jealous. He's heard about this prophecy that, the, that, that, that a child is going to be born that's going to be, you know, um, this, this powerful prophet and everything. Um, he, he's trying to figure out where he was born. He orders all these children under the age of two to be killed, just like Pharaoh is trying to kill all the, the Hebrew male children. Um, and Moses is endangered. Jesus is endangered. And they flee, very interesting, to Egypt. And then once everything seems to have passed and, and it's safe, they leave Egypt. So, just as Moses went out of Egypt, you know, well, Moses doesn't get to go out of Egypt. He, he, he gets to go out of Egypt. He doesn't get to go to the promised land. Just as Moses goes out of Egypt, Jesus goes out of Egypt, you know, in his infancy. And then at the beginning of Christ's public ministry, he comes in and goes to be baptized in the Jordan, which is the, the, the waters that they cross through to enter into the Promised Land. So there's a lot of these things that are, that are tied together, and I think hopefully you can see some of those the more that, that uh, you get to, to dive into this book. But just really quickly to summarize it here, Moses is appointed the covenant mediator who's going to help the liberation of Israel through the Exodus. And it's the Exodus that we'll look forward to and, and, and discuss in the next episode. Moses is the mediator of the Exodus, and the Exodus is going to be the path by which the Israelites are freed and liberated for that worship of God, which is the ultimate end of this entire book. So I hope this is helpful to you. Thank you for uh, sticking around, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thanks. Thanks.